Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. Now, this week's conversation is one I've been looking forward to. It's with new friend of the show, Kelly Alvarez-Doran. He's a longtime architect with an enthusiasm or brooding desperate fear wrapped up in embodied carbon and life cycle analysis. He's taken a proper interesting route to get to where he is now through being a traditional architect, building his own cabin, working for mining industry, doing all sorts of things in Canada, East Africa, in the UK. He's well interesting. To be honest, I think we're going to do quite a few with him because he's got some proper interesting ideas, most of which we, we managed to touch on within this episode. Ostensibly, we wanted to talk about his experiences as a delegate at COP28, from which he came away enthused rather than racked with a, a sense of disappointment and foreboding, which seemed like somewhat worth exploring. The other thing which we barely get to touch on is his consultancy called Half-Life Climate Design, a consultancy or a practice which he set up with some former students. Oh, he's a teacher as well now with a stated goal of reducing Canada's carbon emissions within the construction industry by half. Anyway, we talk about oil age architecture, relearning how to be an architect when you have to rely on the resources that are easily available in Rwanda, learn about embodied carbon, planning for the future, environmental displacement. Now, just as a as an aside, the chat about Dubai is not intended to ignore all the negative issues related to it from what felt like gaslighting or greenwashing through to the hauling exploitation of labour in that area. However, we do get to talk about the positives of Kelly's experience as a delegate at COP28. And this sets up thematically a much bigger conversation about the need to get oil out of architecture wholesale, or rather wherever possible. I won't keep going on about what we're going to talk about. You can just listen to it. Just a few bits of housekeeping before we get into it. Kelly's mic inexplicably went weird halfway through. It gets better after about 10 minutes. I think for some reason, all of our mics went a little bit odd at points. We use an acronym, or a set of initials rather, uh, XPS, Extruded Polystyrene Insulation, just in case it's confusing at all. We also cut a basement anecdote that's alluded to at the end of the podcast. Long story short, when Kelly was living in Ireland, he was surprised to find that no one has a basement there because he comes from Canada where everyone has a basement because it's a loophole in planning law where by digging out a basement, you can add an extra floor to your home. Also, as well as links to the things that we talk about in the podcast where we're referring to specific slides, we'll be posting them onto the LinkedIn channel as long as I remember to do so. Kelly also sent a link to the UK government flood risk tool so you can see where is predicted to be a flood risk. Right, with that away, enjoy it. We did. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Right, Sorry. so after a bunch of digressions, we are here today with Kelly Alvarez-Doran. As we may or may not have said, a man with whom Lloyd is, Lloyd Alter, occasional co-host, is highly enthused. And he made an introduction to us towards the end of last year, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And we've... We're going to have you on to do a whole bunch of episodes, I think, because you've well, got... Well, steady on, Dan. He could be... Um, well, no, we've already talked about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, there is know. that. 
Yeah. We will, in like the, the manner of the staircase or something like that, through the interview process, we will either uh, vindicate him and his positions or expose him as a murderer, like one <laughs> or the other. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's interesting. But um, rather than just have me and Jeff bollocking on, Kelly, Hello, Kelly. Would, you, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience to give them a sense of who you are? Yeah, sure. And uh, thanks, guys, for the invitation. Um, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an architect, Canadian. Uh, I've been practicing for the better part of, I think, what, 15 years now. Graduated uh, from the University of Toronto in 2008. Originally come from Winnipeg, which is a city in the smack dab middle of Canada. I've been practicing, you know, as, as an architect around the world, initially in Toronto, and then found myself working for a architecture and planning firm there that did quite a bit of work internationally with the, the resource development sector, the mining sector. Um, many of the world's mines uh, that are not, you know, parastatals are uh, owned by companies headquartered in Toronto. Um, so, you know, I spent the better part of three years working on workforce housing, resettlement, of urban issues in and around uh, mine sites in places like Turkey, Panama, Mongolia, Ghana, Zambia. My God. After that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It was like mopping you know, up the mess. Is that it? What's that? Mopping up the mess. Is this that the. Uh... Uh, not. Well, I mean, as an architect, you're not. The, the mess, I guess, the mess is from like, um, you know, you build a big copper mine in the middle of, you know, northern Zambia, then a lot of people are going to move there and they're going to need housing and okay. you, you need a community, right? And you know, so you're building ghost towns. Building, building ghost towns. Ghost towns yeah. <laughs> well, I have all the I have a whole thesis on that. Hopefully not. I think most towns that started as mining communities turn into something else historically. And uh, there are quite a few. I mean, Canada's littered with ghost towns. We can, we can get into 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 the specifics of that but my you know after working in the mining sector some of it was workforce housing and then more often than not if you're developing a new mine people are living there and so there's a whole pro process required uh through you know world bank financing and, and international regulations around resettlement so was involved in a resettlement project in panama and then after that i, I took a teaching position at the graduate school of design at Harvard for a year and a half, teaching landscape architecture, and, and over that time, was most of my most of my kind of research was looking at these questions of what are the what happens after the life of a mine because like being there was really like okay, like you're building up an enormous amount of infrastructure, there's a lot of people and their livelihoods that are gathering around this place, but ultimately it's gathering around something that's finite, and so what are the transitional plans into something else, right? So that. That was my research at that point. And then, uh, you know, I was not really, you know, I was like, I, I don't think I'm, don't think I have enough knowledge to really teach yet. So wanted to get back into practice and I was fortunate to meet uh, uh, two of the guys that started Mass Design Group um, while I was still in Boston. And they were, they were, you know, looking for somebody to move to, uh, to Kigali, to Rwanda, to help lead the office there. And it's like, this is a great opportunity. You know, my wife wanted to move somewhere sub-Saharan for for her work, and uh, found myself in Rwanda, which is not was not you know the top of the list of places I imagined I going necessarily. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, a positive case for immigration to Rwanda. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, like... we can get it. We can, maybe we can get it. <laughs> but I could could not have landed in a better situation. Um, Rwanda is incredible, uh, an incredible place to learn how to actually be an architect. So. You know, was fortunate enough to live there for the better part of six years, overseeing, you know, the growth of mass as a practice, doing 
projects of scales I had not foreseen, uh, you know, in, in timeframes that were, you know, unknown to me, like for instance, designing a hospital in four months and having it built in 18. Um, there's just a certain <laughs> attitude of like, get shit done. Um, you know, we need to move forward and, uh, just an incredible place to, to practice, you know, architecture. And, and moreover, I think when living there really revealed to me, it made a kind of fundamental connection with back to the work I've been doing in the mining sector. But, you know, Rwanda is a landlocked country that's small. It's got an 18% import tax. And so, you know, uh, more often than not, we're working with like challenging budgets, you know, kind of in a developing context um, and a challenging budget in a country with an 18% import tax. Well, you know, you have to figure out how to make the thing there pretty quickly, Local right? Supply like, chains, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like who's who's around? What material exists? How do we make stuff of this place? And okay. um, it took it took a good part of like a year for me to unlearn all of the training I had as a kind of Canadian Western trained architect, which had really ill-equipped me to practice in a place like that because you know I was trained to be a catalog picker not really thinking about the provenance of the decisions I was making. And then coming there, I was like, well, there's no catalog. So, you know, you got to figure out how to make it here. And I think that was just an absolutely transformative experience for me. And yeah. then moved moved to London. My, my, like my, my wife's job brought us back here. We had some kids, you know, been working remotely back and forth uh, at that point with uh, Rwanda. And you know, also uh, down there, it's the first time I'd ever heard the term embodied carbon. It's about seven or eight years ago now when we were working with uh, some researchers at MIT at that point. We were always really interested in the social impacts of our projects, the, like where the money goes and who's benefiting from it. But this is the first time we looked at, you know, the carbon impact um, as, a, as one environmental indicator. And it was like a jaw-dropping moment for me. It's like, wow, I've never heard of this. And like, look at our project, the school in Congo. It's like 128th the global average. It was like, what 128th the average? Like, what imagine the school that I went to in Winnipeg? Like, what is it on this on this kind of scale? Yeah. And I and I come to realize, well, wow, this is like all my impact. Like as an architect, all my training is around like op buildings operations, but in a place like Rwanda or Winnipeg you know, it, my impact on the decisions that I'm in charge of and their impact on the climate is like, it's all in embodied, it's all these upfront emissions, right? That is an um, interesting statement. Well, it's, it's what you control. And if you're, if you're working in places where you're not using a lot of power or you're deriving your energy from, and you're deriving your, your energy from a fairly clean electrical grid, it's all in, in embodied carbon and, and the embodied, you know, impacts the other um, environmental impacts beyond just global warming potential. And like that, I think that realization hit me really like in the gut, like what the fuck have I been trained? Right. And at the same time, you know, having my first child and then look, you know, being like, how do we actually tackle the kind of the, my climate anxiety and so living in the UK and Europe and getting familiar with what's happening here in the kind of policy environment and then looking back at Canada, I mean, like, okay, like I kind of live in the future here from a policy perspective, like, you know, we're Northern Europe, UK to an extent, certainly the city of London, we're five to 10 years in advance of where North America is. What, what can I possibly do about this? And so four years ago, I approached um, the University of Toronto to to teach there. It's like the first year of COVID. 
So I'm like, could I teach, you know, life cycle assessment, you know, to, to, to architecture students? And uh, I said, yeah, you know, come on in. It's all, all through Zoom. I did that as a way to kind of start a conversation. There was city of Vancouver had been developing policy. They did this benchmarking study. Like we need to half the emissions this decade, you know, never mind 2050 net zero. We need to half them. This was 2020. We need to do it by 2030. So half of what is the first question. Yeah. So they did this benchmarking study. They got 50 buildings. Okay. Like that's what we're doing in 2018. So 10 years from now, we got to, we got to figure out how we're going to track down to that. And I was like, well, that's great precedent. And it's always good to like bring something to the city of Toronto and say, well, Vancouver's doing it uh, from a kind of rivalry mm-hmm. perspective. So use this, you know, use the studio as a way of creating data and teaching students and getting a conversation going in the architectural community of Toronto, which, you know, you know, I was pretty connected to and it worked, you know, got the data, engaged 10 firms in it, took the data to the city. The city said, Hey, you know, I was like, what are you gonna do about this? Like, yeah, good point. And so we got a grant, made the 10 projects into 50, wrote some policy, policy passed last spring. And it's kind of snowballing. And I think like, you know, the momentum around the embodied carbon community to kind of like isolate it, but the broader issues of coming yeah. to the realization, this, this realization that our impacts have way more to do with what we're building a building with and not necessarily how it's operating. You know, the lessons I learned in Rwanda six, seven years ago, I think like it's, it's exciting to see how fast that discussion is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so it's kind of, yeah. So, I mean, over the, basically over the last four, four years or so, I'm really been focused on these questions and helping to, you know, bridge that gap and, and make up, get everybody up to, up to speed on, on really how we can all work together to tackle the, yeah, the, yeah. the question of our time. So when I you think- talk about embodied versus operational, sorry, Dan. Obviously, the 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 relative kind of importance of one next to the, over the other will vary depending on, say, the carbon intensity of the grid in a given country, or 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 how they're heating a building, or whatever. Um, and I note that um, in the UK, for instance, some of the organisations in, involved in 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 embodied carbon calculations and so on are trying to to come up with whole life carbon figures and cross reference one against the other and so on. Because you can end up in a situation, for instance, where you know, uh, you could say, well, it's not justified to put in triple glazing, for instance, or put in PV, um, whatever it might be, because of the embodied carbon in that. Where do you stand on that? Are you, do you think there are absolute answers in this regard? Or, or is, it, is it relative, depending on, on, on context, you know? All relative and all depends. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I've, I've have a couple slides have gotten me in trouble with people in the past. It's you know, say like here, here's a specific window system in a specific place. In what year does it make sense to have a dual paned window wall system versus a triple pane window wall system in Toronto, Ontario? And I don't think there is a year it makes sense because it's kind of putting more material in a system that's not very doesn't have thermal thermally is not high performing, right? And uh, you can latch on to that as like, oh, well, triple paint's bad. No, it, it like it's completely dependent on a host of things. And so I think the whole life carbon perspective is critical. Um, like we're making up ground quickly on embodied carbon. The operational intelligence is like highly refined. And as I kind of say that, like we basically looking out of one eye, certainly my whole career, I've been looking out of one eye. Yeah. And now it's like, you can't just 
okay, now now we're going to see embodied karma at the other. It's like, no, we've got to like see both at the same time over time. Yeah. You know, like the decisions I'm making now, how does this play out over the next 20 years? Like the, the years that really matter. The next 10 years, frankly, are the ones that really matter. Yeah. Because there's things that you can control here now that we don't necessarily know it's going to happen in 30 to 40 years. Like the rate of decarbonization of our grids, for instance, right? Like there are projections of the grid to decarbonize and let's hope that that happens and I think we need to plan for that as a, as something that happens. Yeah. Uh, instead of it's like, well, we don't know if that's going to happen. And in fact, in the province of Ontario, the current government, they actually want to have more gas-fired power. So it's like, so this is a good idea. But like, well, you, one's an unknown and one's a known. So, you know, the known knowns, you know, to quote, quote Rumsfeld here, yeah. like these are the things that we know, right? And And I think you can plan for different trajectories of future, but let's make decisions now that are not, mortgaging that future um, i really like to quote rumsfeld it really i think it annoys dan um yeah well so. no no i consider rumsfeld to be a friend of the show for that quote there you go <laughs> uh, but yeah i think that the your point about the the known knowns and known unknowns uh known unknowns etc i think it as circuitous as it might seem it's a really good way of thinking about the whole subject like mm-hmm. interrogating the uh, life cycle analysis. I think that's a subject I'd like to return to with you on another podcast because yeah. what you said with your with your background, what you said in the first meeting that we had, like it was one of them meetings. I think we were scheduled for about half an hour and we took an hour and a half and we had to call time on it because we had other stuff to do, Jeff. Mm. Like life cycle analysis doesn't go back anywhere near far enough at the moment. It isn't sophisticated enough in being able to appreciate all the myriad concerns and factors that go into it. Like, really, we need to be going back to the factoring in all of the material costs, like from the mine to the factory, but not just from the mine to the factory. So the facetious point you made about cleaning up mining environments. I mean, the news about the tar sands this morning, like the uh, pollution in Canada is underestimated to the degree of... Well, pollution in Canada is 6,800% worse than reported as a consequence of tar sand. Yeah, 6,300% 6, more, so 63 times higher. Yeah. Wow. Like, that shit's astonishing. And that is a known unknown. <laughs> we knew we always knew it was worse uh, than, it, than was reported. But like all of this stuff needs to somehow needs to be cobbled into it, which means that we should be cutting back desperately right now. Yeah, well, and it's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to, I'm sympathetic to Lloyd Alter's uh, position about focusing on, he talks about upfront carbon as an alternative to embodied carbon. I don't think strictly accurate, of course, um, because, you know, the focus there is on, is on, the building at the point of it's at least implicit that the focus is on the building at the point of completion right yeah, um, yeah. and that's really important it's really important not to lose sight of that but i'm i remember there's a lovely arc uh there actually they went out of business years ago there was a wonderful irish uh, ecological architectural practice years ago called soul earth and pioneering kind of green architects um and they would do things like when the client would give would give them a commission to do this they would they do things that uh, would they? You could be accused of architectural like um, embellishment, or 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 just uh, I guess doing things that they that, that, like like a magpie that might be drawn to, um, and justifying them 
I think plausibly on sustainability grounds, like having zinc or copper rainwater goods on the basis that although other other uh, cheaper metals might be easier you know, uh, to to recycle, the value of the material is so, so high that you know it's going to be salvaged at the end of life. I don't know about that, um, but I think there has to be a recognition, there has to be a consideration, especially with the fact that we, we've got a increasingly wild and unpredictable climate to deal with towards producing buildings that are adapted for climate change and that are designed to last as well and designed to be adaptable. So it's what well, I don't know, well, Kelly, what you think about this, you know, it's it's an area that I think it's easy to get lost in this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is again where there's like, it's way more nuanced discussion. Um, I watched yeah. your TED, I, I watched your TED talk truly, by the way, before this. Um, oh God. And um, no, I mean, I think like, you know, again, well, we need to really reduce somebody carbon here, but that means we're going to have buildings that are less durable and we have to like more maintenance and replacement cycles and, and they're going to be less resilient. I, I was like, well, I don't necessarily buy that because you, you know, there's, yeah. there's a whole bunch of hosts of assumptions in that. And, yeah. you know, even in the realm of lower carbon materials, you know, like durability as like should be a factor, right? Absolutely. I think like in making decisions, it shouldn't just be about global warming potential. It should also be about the other planetary boundaries. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, how is it going to adapt with projected climate realities, right? It, it's, it's, these are not necessarily opposed to each other. To be lower upfront emissions, lower overall ec- ecological impact, while also being long-term more adaptive, and resilient. I, I, I'm not, I don't really love the word resilient. I want to, I think like how buildings can adapt to these futures that are totally the known unknowns. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. as like thinking about that and, you know, it was on a panel with uh, Ellen Pond from the Canadian center for climate services a little while ago and looking at the temperature ranges and of like potentials of Canada's weather in the future. And there's like, there's a worst case scenario of like one degree and then there's like or the best case scenario of like one to 1.5 and then worst case scenario is like four to five degrees over here because Canada's warming four or five times faster than other parts of the world specifically in the north right yeah. so you know how do you wrap your head around that as an architect right now I say what am I designing for in that and then your site itself like this is an area that historically hasn't been flood prone, but exactly. probably will be, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we be like, should we be building in this part of the valley? Like, or what's its relationship to wildfire potential? Like the kind of, you know, the 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 things that we are going to see. Like, can you design around a tornado's path? Not really, but there's certain <laughs> details that you would put in. That, and there's things that you would be thinking about in the building of a house if it's you're thinking about tornadoes which in the UK and Ireland now would be a concern, right? And yeah. uh, I think these are the things we need to be thinking about. And I think too often, you know, I think like the, the resilient mentality is like, let's build a bunch of concrete Swiss bunkers. That's exactly right? it. Yeah. And if we all do that, well, then good luck. <laughs> I think That's- it's analogous to um to people. The, the thing it always comes to my mind as a non-motorist, the way cars are getting bigger and bulkier. And people's response, you know, people's uh, way to keep their children safe, for instance, is by driving a bloody tank around. Yeah, <laughs> be an arms response. race, and it ends. It ends in one one spot, and that's like you know the the end of our species on this planet. So, <laughs> you know, the 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 ways to to address these is like applying way more intelligence and and, and way more like 
I don't know, a, a realistic approach to certain questions. Like, you know, even discussing about where we should be building communities right now. Yeah. Uh, these are like politically untouchable right now. But, mm -hmm. you know, should you be building anything in parts of London, for instance? Probably not. <laughs> you know, should we be starting to think about how we're going to relocate millions of houses? Yes, we should. You know, like these obvious discussions that are kind of nowhere in a broader public discourse, yeah. really, because they seem so abstract, but that kind of long-term thinking about where we're headed and like, what is some vision of like, what is a vision of, a, of the livable future um, and what decisions need to be made? Uh, it's just, these are the kind of, I think is the kind of questions, hard questions, more macro questions that are really hard to even contemplate having in our current I know political structures, right? Where yeah, the poli the politics of like a four or five year election cycle are not going to do us any favors with the realities in front of us uh, well, as they're as it's currently structured. The politics on all levels is driven by economics, and the economics of everything is increasingly short term. Even down to, I mean, in fact, no, I won't go down that blind alley. I like for this the 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 reference point that Alex frequently brings up is Nintendo, like. Nintendo is a business with a 100-year strategy. As a business, they think in this, they have a macro vision. So Nintendo... But they weren't thinking about uh, Switches and stuff 100 years ago, Dan. No, they were thinking yeah. about games. They were yeah. originally... A, a car... Yeah, they were cars and stuff, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when they had the opportunity to build an entertainment system, they seized it and they recognized how that fit into their what broader strategy... And if you look at what Nintendo does as a business, like if you think about their strategy when, man, this might be too much of a deviation, but like <laughs> in the two, in the player v player uh, fighting boom of the 90s, when Street Fighter 2 took off through the arcades and the, the home versions were built, Mortal Kombat became its, its nearest competitor. And when Nintendo ported it, because it knew what it was doing, it was appealing to a family market a uh, family-based market, uh, they cut the blood out of it and the fatalities. Well, the fatalities were less, much less gruesome. And they stuck to their strategy. They were lampooned for it, but they stuck to their strategy and it's paid off sticking to knowing what their ultimate goal is, like home entertainment for a group of people in the same way we should be thinking about housing, and this is how it is analogous, like long-term resilient housing for people to be able to fucking live in for a long time. And that sort of long-termism isn't something that is is really dealt with. And long-termism pays off. Like in the case of Nintendo, as Jeff's son quizzed me on what the top five selling consoles of all time are when we went out for dinner in Dublin. <laughs> and three of them are Nintendos, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is like no surprise if you know what Nintendo is as a beast. But yeah, business doesn't, they are an aberration on the world stage. Like, depends what business you're in. I, I think if you look at insurance right now, like they know what's going on, they're in the long term game. Yeah. Uh, act actuarial mathematicians are realistic about things and what, what, what homes are being insured and not insured is pretty indicative of like the direction of travel. You know, if you live in Pimlico, you're going to have a hard time getting home insurance pretty soon, if already. Yeah. All right. But I take your point about, um, about resilience, I think it's, it's it's well made. I mean, I was just thinking about it in terms of how you how you respond. The thing is, we've got so many 
uncertainties and so many variables that we we, we don't kind of know how they're going to play out. The glib kind of sci-fi style response is, you know, houseboats or something like that, or or, or houses that can, <laughs> bankers basically, that can move around. You've seen them on Grand Designs stuff in the past. I don't know. I'm, I'm minded as well. One of our, uh, a friend of Dan and myself, Steve Molyneux, now Green Party councillor, he had a job years ago selling classifieds on uh, Farmers Weekly or something like that. Um, yeah, it was Farmers Weekly. One guy called and he, he couldn't work out whether this is a prank call or not, uh, saying something like it was a massive uh, farm shed, like a farm building, a you know, steel uh, agricultural farm building that had been stolen. <laughs> uh, may have gone to Scotland, I remember was one of the details. You know, that's where, where do you stand on this, Kelly? Kelly, do you think we should be thinking about um, dismountable, relocatable buildings or is that uh, an unhelpful distraction? <laughs> on a more macro level? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say not necessarily thinking we need to do the RP ground walking cities necessarily again here, but a design for disassembly makes sense uh, from a circularity perspective and a long term you know, reuse and not knowing what's going to happen with, with buildings. And I think then the more fundamental things are like planning about where we live now and where we're going to live in the future. And that, again, long-termism about, hey, should we be building in the fence, for instance, right? Like low-lying areas <laughs> that are going to be uh, susceptible to sea level rise. I mean, that's that's the most obvious thing in the context of the UK and Ireland to like, What's the implication of sea level rise in our cities? Well, it's profound, right? And there's, you know, maps that show you what that's going to look like in 50 years. So let's start planning around those maps, for instance. And then from a material perspective, what does that mean? Well, you know, we have an enormous, you know, 100% of the world's materials have already been mined, right? And they're already fired and they're all on the surface. And one thing that really struck me, um, you know, I used to work in mining and, you know, seeing all these geological maps, really interesting the history of geology, went to the Royal Society and like looked at these maps that the, you know, that the basically were being done of all the former colonies. And at this point, you know, we know pretty much everything that's below the Earth's surface, but we have very little understanding of what's on the Earth's surface. And from a material perspective, and that strikes me as like a kind of massive blind spot, uh, and I think a real area of opportunity, like. What do we already have and how do we start thinking about marshalling that in intelligent ways? And what does it mean to move people, right? Um, like I, I could point to parts of the city of London that we should start thinking seriously about relocating. Um, having worked in relocation before, you know, there's processes to this. It takes a lot of time, decades. Uh, but that should be a discussion we start doing. Well, how do we move you, your community and your house to higher ground, right? What, what's the plan there? Um, and that, uh, that, and that's a discussion worldwide that needs to be started happening, right? If it hasn't, I mean, it should have started 20, 20 years ago. Um, and that, I think that movement of people and materials, uh, that's like one thing where new materials come from. I think the, you know, we can get to COP in a second, but the idea that, you know, the, that we're going to build twice as many buildings in the next 30 years as that already, you know, that the, the last thousands of years have built like that again i find this is like a really strange assumption that we're just going to be on this continuum of construction um i think there's parts of the world uh that already have enough building like as a canadian you know, my message is like we don't have a housing crisis we have an allocation crisis we have way more housing than we need for the current population and we can comfortably house 
three to four times Canada's population under the roofs that exist. So it's it's from a material perspective, it's because it's just been, you know, the allocation is, to, you know, grossly over-distributed to a small population. And, uh, you know, so there's a different way to approach the same problem as opposed to let's just keep building oversized houses for, you know, for the population that's going to, you know, come towards us uh, increasingly so. And the same would be, you know, for, for the UK, for Ireland, you know, it's less so. I mean, my house here is one-fourth the size per capita is the one I grew up in. And, you know, I think the challenges here are, are slightly different of, of how to make use of what we already have and improve the building stock and the kind of retro first campaign. The I, I hate how the word insulation is now like frowned upon, but, you know, I, I totally agree what Insulate Britain was trying to achieve. Like we need to retrofit Britain. We need to retrofit uh, Ireland because our building stocks are poorly performing. And in the same time, you know, how do we rethink, you know, rethink it? I mean, some buildings that probably maybe need to come back down and then be built again in a different spot while you're doing it, as opposed to, you know, throwing bad money after bad by insulating a house that's going to be underwater in five to 10 years if it's not already. So there are two things that we were intending to talk about today, which relate, I mean, specifically to what we are already talking about, which are like as a, a consequence of all your experiences, you ended up setting up uh, an organization called Half Climate Design, which the stated goal is to reduce Canada's emissions. I think it's emissions or is it carbon use by half in the construction yeah. about the construction industry. I'll let you explain the new carbon use, Dan. No, that's the carbon use. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I accepted that I was garbling it, Jeff. Well, no I just need... like to drive the whole point All home. Right, yeah, well, I can edit this out if I like. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just edit in, in my best RP. I'll edit in the, the statement, like me getting it right, and then uh, I'll find another bit of you saying something stupid. And then I'll edit in me criticising you for saying something stupid. Like, What's that got to do with anything, Jeff? Um, okay. <laughs> and the other thing is, you were, you were at COP, COP28, and... We vicariously came away from COP26 all enthused. COP27 came and went with nary a peep. And COP28 sounded like an utter shit show. But curiously, you came away like with quite a positive impression beyond like... Well, what uh, were you doing there as well? Yeah, well, let's start. Let's start with the cop stuff. So, um, yeah, so I was I was able to to go to Dubai in December uh, with I'm a I'm a senior fellow of Architecture 2030. If you're familiar oh, yeah. with that organization, yeah, great. You know, yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm a, been a fellow for the better part of a year, and this this year, a group of us, uh, a group of the fellows, went to COP as delegates of of uh, Architecture 2030, and got to speak on a few panels, uh, a couple of roundtables in it. And I went in with, you know, listen, per, per what I forwarded you the other day, what I wrote for the Architects newspaper, like I went in pretty cynical and skeptical, like, like everybody, like, why are we doing this in Dubai? And it's being run by an oil executive, like, you know, on the surface, this is just, you know, totally problematic. And I think how it was reported, you know, daily was really focused on that paradox. And so certainly when I arrived, I'd never been to Dubai. Have either one of you been there before? No. I mean, it oh was, yeah, once. Why? I, no yeah, I had no idea how big it was. Like I, I was just trying to wrap my head around the scale of the city. Yeah. Like just landing there and being like, okay, this is this goes forever. Like 
there's the world's tallest building. It's like in the distance and it's like miniature. And then you get into the world's tallest building. You go to the top floor, you look over the observatory deck and you're like, oh, there's a whole bunch of other massive tall buildings over there. And that's like, it's like, I'm basically standing in Yonkers looking at the World Trade Center, but I'm in the world's tallest building in Yonkers. Like that, the kind of scale of it is incredible and then it's all been built in 20 over the last 20 30 years right and it, it but, is a, a a site of grotesque overconsumption on so many different levels yeah they, I, I mean exactly it's this but it's the city of like incredible paradox too where there's this accretion of wealth and kind of you know ostentatiousness where every mall has got you know, stores I can't afford to shop in. And you're you're finding yourself into malls by accident. You know, what I'm in yet another luxury mall. So there's that experience of it. But then on the other side, you know, our hotel was like down in the old city center uh, near, near the airport. And I took the train back and forth to cop every day. And you could take a taxi, but I, I cannot stand being in cars anymore. And I was like, I do not want to sit in, in sitting, drinking the fumes of, all the traffic we're sitting in. And there's like this nice elevated train that goes back and forth. And that train is filled with people in their 20s and 30s from Asia and Africa, the operating system of the of the city. It was like really amazing, actually, frankly. You guys say it reminded me a lot of taking the subway in Toronto or you know, in parts of London. But you know, every time I'm back in Toronto, I'm like, this is the city's amazing because it's basically young people from all over the world that have come here. To like figure this out, right? We're riding the line back and forth every day from all walks of life, and like that was kind of Dubai, right? And you know the waiters, every the wait staff of all the restaurants, like where are you from? Cameroon, Ghana, Philippines. You know, it's like really incredible. And so, in a way, like just taking the train and being there, I was like getting a sense of like, okay, no, there's more here. There's something in the city happening that I think is really underreported. And then getting into COP itself. You know, it's this 100,000 people a day, a massive, like the former expo grounds. And they had it zoned into like a blue zone where all the official, you know, the official delegates could, could go. So, you know, have, wearing the lanyard, going through security, so the politicians are. And then, you know, all the other people like myself that are that are there for the events. But you enter this blue zone. There's the big, massive room where every day they're at the end of the day, they're doing the you know, announcements of this thing happened this day, right? So you can poke your head in there. You can, oh, there's John Kerry. There, here's John Kerry. Here's some other politicians I recognize. But you go out of that and you walk through a field of pavilions. And so because it had been an expo, but these buildings are broken down. So every country has got a pavilion and they're each every day running like talks all day long or panels on topics per the day's theme more often. So the days are like, one theme at a time. So there's like a buildings and urbanization day. There's like a forestry day an agriculture day. And, you know, you can, okay. So at any one time, there are hundreds of conversations happening. And then there's like theme specific buildings. There's like, you know, a lot of the talks were in the buildings pavilion. You get into there and there's, you know, we're finding our way up to the English language section of like the buildings pavilion, but there's also you know, different languages and the different realm of conversations and just like walking through and being kind of like, holy shit, there's, this is incredible of the amount of people coming here to talk about a shared future through various different perspectives. And 
talking on these panels and meeting, getting out of the kind of Anglo Arca bubble that I live in and, you know, seeing yep. what the conversation yep. around nuclear power is in like Angola or like, you know, the, these things are happening, but like, I don't, when have I been exposed to these really interesting conversations in other parts of the world? It's like just, just coming and taking that in and then meeting people from other parts of the world and, you know, and then getting out of the discipline, like thinking about the forestry day for me was really interesting. Like, okay, what's, what's the conversation around forestry in, you know, in Canada or Thailand or Bhutan? And how does that relate to what we're talking about over here in the buildings pavilion, right? Likewise, agriculture. So I, that's, you know, I walked away from, I met a whole bunch of people. I'm going to got some collaborations out of it. I mean, like I learned a lot and I definitely want to go back to the next one to, you know, keep tracking this progress because I think like the, the thing that got all the attention was the main agreement, you know, that at the end of it, that kind of got watered down and isn't what we hoped it would be certainly. But then all of the little things that I think you can't really track that are happening also, you know, there, there's, there's, there's impactful things happening and the relationships and deals being brokered at these convenings. So I, I don't know. I mean, from my, from my perspective, do I wish that uh, the word phase out was in there instead of transition? Yes. But uh, I think it's important that, you know, I had this important event, frankly, and uh, was honored to, to have gone. So you've described it in terms more like the UK's largest music festival, Glastonbury, than anything else. Like the main stage, Fuckhead Sheeran, not interested. But there's plenty going on elsewhere that can ensure you have a thoroughly fulfilling experience and can propagate significant change or growth within you as an individual or the industry itself. I don't think I'm even stretching that analogy too far there. Anyway, sorry. Like that sounds that sounds properly interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, for the piece I like the the train back and forth every day. You know, when you take the train back, it's the le- it's the last station. So you're getting on with just delegates, and then it starts packing itself up again with the 20s and 30 or op- operating system of the city. But on my last day, I I sat down next to Duncan Baker Brown, who I, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm sure you do. So catching up with him, you know, and then we're sat opposite. He's like two guys that were like pretty grumpy. Duncan got off the train, and I was just kind of like you know eavesdropping. You know, so I finally said, hey, guys, you know, like, you know, they're they're says on their on their like lanyard, Iraqi delegation. Right. I'm like, so, you know, how's it going? And they're like, well, you know, this is the two this our last day as a delegate. But then the negotiator said the last two days when they're like kind of banging up the agreement, like, well, you know, about this this phase out. I'm like, yeah, like they're like, well, it'll it'll kill us. Right. And I I kind of like, you know, responded at the point like, well, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm Canadian. You know, from one petrol state to another, I, I understand. And uh, but, but I went back and I actually like I don't know if that's a fair assessment. So I went and like looked up the the percentage. Of, you know, speaking of the oil sounds like what's the percentage of oil and gas in Canada's economy? And that's like eight percent. It's not high. Uh, we're led to believe that's much higher uh, to support it politically. We're in Iraq. It's like eighty eight percent is crude oil export, right? So. We're not, we're not like my statement was completely false. And, and moreover, like it's, the, it's like states like Iraq or Venezuela that are, you know, I understand their position. If your entire economy has been handcuffed to like one resource and you're not 
shown the way out of it, or there's not a helping hand for you in getting out of it, uh, then and you're just told you can't do it anymore. Well, what are you going to vote for? Right? Like I completely understood their, their perspective. It was like, that's why I think it's just as important that we work with nations like Iraq who've, you know, decades of occupation and exploitation. We need to work with Iraq as much as we need to work with like the Marshall Islands or, you know, island states that have existential crisis of their own. They both have existential issues, right? Mm-hmm. And I have a hard time right in the kind of state of the world right now, imagining some sort of global cooperation where we're doing this together. But that's what we need desperately. Like we need to help, you know, folks in Iraq, like figure out how they're going to stop relying on crude oil exports as much as, and, you know, back to us, well, you know, they're exporting it to us, you know, like, so we need to figure out how to get oil and gas out of what we do every day so that, so it becomes less real, like that, that relationship can change. And this is my kind of message as an architect is look in the mirror at how much oil and gas you use on a daily basis and forget about like gas heating, look at your building because you know, our, our buildings consume oil of the 77 things in a Canadian house right now, 11 of them at minimum are made out of oil. Um, and that, that to me is like super problematic. And it's like, we got to just stop oil in architecture. Um, and it's, uh, it should be pretty easy, but it's, it's when you get into it, it's really tricky. Yeah. Folk don't like change and they, well, yeah. Or they don't know what even, uh, Hey, I've been using this insulation that's made out of petrochemicals uh, and I've been told that it's sustainable for years. And you're telling me that this is not sustainable. It's like, well, have you really stopped to consider what, you know, your next generation XPS is made out of? Yeah. Well, what you described, the phrase you used earlier really resonated, like with specific regard to a couple of projects we're working on elsewhere, but like, to describe yourself as being trained as a catalog picker. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, uh, yeah. there's more to it than that. But, like, if that is your methodology, like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. that requires, no. like, such an overhaul of approach at all levels. Yeah, you know? I know. I mean, the, the, the positive thing for me, and I, I, I wonder, Kelly, whether you share this, is that over the last couple of years in particular, as we've started to get deeper into to start to make some sort of attempt at paying proper attention to embodied carbon as a subject, it's liberating to actually still feel like you're not, not to say that there are not lots of caveats and assumptions in the calculations that you need to kind of try and unpick and be aware of, but you can start to actually know things that, you know, in this one area, admittedly only, you can start to know things or get closer to knowing things that, that, uh, and cut through some of the, the, the marketing kind of, guff that uh you know with eco prefixes being attached to things and so on do you find that that's uh, you know has that been a useful experience for you in terms of you know uh getting into the into the detail and of of uh what the values are for a given material or a given build system or whatever yeah you know i try to tell people like embodied carbon is the doorway yeah. to all that'll open up to all the other questions you should be thinking about right like on the planetary boundaries yeah, yeah. the global warming potentials here but then right next to it and connected is like novel entities and uh, ec- ecological destruction. I forget the one like when and and they are closely related. You know, Martha Lewis uh, at Henning Larson, this incredible talk last year in Amsterdam, like making the link between a well, the XPS insulation, incredibly high global warming potential, 
by the way, it's also introducing a whole bunch of novel entities, you know, into our environment because most anything that you refine on this plastic base is doing that. And what are the implications on that on the biosphere? It's not just CO2E at the end of the day, it's all these other things. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, you know, we can, this kind of maybe a transition to half, but I, I realize like embodied carbon for me, and I, I may, I could show you here, but you know, I, you know, looking at it in Rwanda, I went back and I looked at this cottage that I had designed for my own family. And I was like, okay, so what have I been doing? Right. And went back and did a life cycle assessment of the cottage. And I don't know if it's useful to bring it up at all and show you this, what we do this or not. Well, you can, well, we can, we can have, we can enjoy having one up on our listeners that way. Yeah. It's good. Um, yeah, here, here we go. All right. So I went back to this, you know, this here, the school that, that we, that we had built in Congo, um, you know, in the middle of the Congolese forest, you know, when I was talking about one twenty eighth the embodied carbon. So it's like, well, what, what have I been doing, you know, all these years? So I went back to this, this building that I, you know, designed like a decade ago, uh, this cottage for my, for my then in, uh, where I now in-laws and it was like, okay, well, it's completely off grid. It's solar powered. It's like, totally designed around passive ventilation. I, you know, I thought I was doing all the right things, but I had not thought about embodied carbon. So, you know, went back, built, kind of revisited the digital model I had written and did the first kind of self-taught myself how to do an LCA and mm -hmm. really simple, right? As somebody who used to work in construction as, as like a cost estimator, it's just quantities. It's, and just replacing dollar bills with an EPD. Like it's a, very simple exercise, basic accounting for architecture. And so, yeah, this, this, you know, summer home was like 92 tons of carbon. It's like, okay, well, that's the equivalent of me, a Canadian driving a car for 92 years. Okay. That that's profound. 10% of it was just the wood. It's a, I thought it was a wood frame building, you know, conventional kind of balloon framed uh, North Americans construction. It's not a wood frame building. It's a crawl space with a wood frame on top of it. At that 65% of the emissions of this, of this like summer home that's lived in, you know, two, three months a year at best, where this decision I made about how to found it, which is this cast concrete crawl space wrapped in Owens Corning XPS insulation. This is like, again, we occupy this in the summer. Like, why did I make this decision? Well, like I was trained to, like I had not thought about different foundation systems at that point that over half of the building's emissions were like from two materials, ubiquitous in North America, XPS insulation on below grade foundations, again, not necessary, and the asphalt shingles on the roof, which you land in any North American cities. It's what you see, asphalt shingles, right? 15 year life cycle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why did I do this? Like, you know, reflecting on like, well, I'd been trained, like, you know, became a registered architect. I, the, the, the frame of reference and Lloyd will appreciate this. He refers to the, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Council has these, these manuals they put out, have historically put out a manual called the Canadian Wood Frame House Construction. So he's got one that from the sixties that he put up the other day on his, uh, on his, um, his post and like this one is still alive by the way so it's still there and if you go to the back page of it in the appendix appendix b here cutaway of a wood framed house you can see there's 77 things in a canadian house and 11 of them minimum are made out of oil here right membranes foams all this stuff and so it's like our own government is telling us to use oil right daily in in the making of our building so i'm literally 
you know, I have been trained and indoctrinated to, to do this. Um, you know, I've, ha- I've had my students at the University of Toronto go back and look at the history of material families. So we do the life cycle assessment. It opens up these kind of questions like, okay, what's the history of like brick, wood, insulation in the context of Southern Ontario? And my student, uh, Ryan Brewer, who I now work with at half, he looked at insulation. It was like, if you look at the timeline of insulation, it's fascinating because really only last 40, 40 to 50 years, plastics have become ubiquitous and dominate the marketplace. Not a hundred years ago, things like wood fiberboard and cellulose animal products were the norm. Like they were everywhere in Ontario, right? And over time, things like cellulose have like been decreased in the marketplace. It's really hard to find enough cellulose in Ontario, right? You know, just bananas. It's like mm. a province covered in wood, right? Mm. Um, but at the same time, you see this dramatic uptick of things like polystyrenes. And this is happening through very uh, you know, talking about long game Nintendo, like, you know, Owens Corning and DuPont have a long game here and have for a long time, like, Hey, we got a, bu- a bunch of byproducts here from the refining of, of oil and gas. Well, what are we going to do with them? Well, Hey, Oh, Hey, polystyrene. This has really got really therm- fantastic thermal properties, right? Bang, bang, bang. And that this is a letter from the XPS association of America written in 2020 at that point to then Senator Barrasso basically saying, Hey, we, the association of, you know, XPS makers, we already know that we can do this better and reduce the global warming potential. We already do that in Europe and have for a long time now, but here in the United States, please just keep letting us do it the old fashioned way that has crazy amount of blowing agent and has a global warming potential, you know, much, much higher than any other product. And, you know, of course the last administration allowed that to happen. Like this is the North American reality is that we are, we have been kind of lobbied and brainwashed into thinking that these materials are commonplace and a necessity. And so yeah. we have to like come to terms with that. I think first come to terms with how indoctrinated we are. And I'll, I'll leave with, you know, the folks that were at KPMB lab a couple of years ago, put out this report, which is the whole life carbon of insulation systems. And it's basically like, if you have a, you can see this is if you've got a high efficiency house in Toronto, what year does the uh, operational savings of the insulation cross over with the upfront emissions of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this was published in Canadian Architect. It was up for a couple hours um, before it was taken down initially. And then it was republished months later with the removal of all the brand names next to it. Because what it shows is really like, I mean, it's, it's condemning. And like many of these, if you were using blown cellulose or fiberglass in the first few hours of your house, it will make sense if your house is gas fired. Hmm. If you're using, using the stuff that's on my foundations in, in my cottage, you know, it takes nine years for that material to cross over, i.e. you're better off just having paper on your house than insulation for the first nine years. If your house is gas fired, that makes sense. Yeah. That's All right. Now, but if you're doing the right thing and you're using electrical heating or cooling right now, this is the year it makes sense from an atmospheric perspective. So, i.e., it'll never make sense to use these materials atmospherically, which is so, like. So, how many years you know, is that based on this chart? For I mean, hundreds. It's going to cross over way, way down. You know, <laughs> we'll be fossilized by the time it makes sense. And, but just like thinking this through, 
if you have a high performing heat pump house, but you're still employing even the new XPS, right? The stuff that is marketed aggressively uh, in every trade magazine. Even if you go to Canadian Architects website, you look up this article, there's an ad more often than not for new XPS right beside the study, which I love. It's hysterical because this is who's funding our education. This is historically unique continuing education credits. And you go to a conference, they're in the corner, right? Like it's, they're kind of everywhere. Big oil is massive in the in the built environment. Mm. Yeah. And this isn't to damn people specifically who are using it now for using it now. We can damn them for not entertaining change. We need a just transition away from new XPS. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah. We have a project in the next issue of the magazine, um, which I'm looking forward to sinking my teeth into. By uh, I don't know if you know uh, Kirsty McGuire, Scottish architect. This is a lovely low energy building. It's it's uh, designed to the the Passivaris Institute's the PHI low energy building standard. It's a, a timber frame building with timber cladding and is it wood fiber or cell- a cellulose insulation, which tends to do much better than than wood fiber in terms of embodied carbon. And it's sitting on ground screws. Um, yeah. A two-story building on ground screws, which is the first time I've, it's there's almost no concrete at all in the building yep. and almost all biogenic material in terms of the, the fabric, you know, windows aside, obviously. Perfect. You know. And if it's a helical pier, you can take it out and use it again, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how we should be founding buildings. So it, back to like, you know, that cottage. So my, my father-in-law who sold his old cottage to build this one. He's like, oh, my uncle built that in the 50s. Like, what were the foundations? He's like, you know, I think they were they were just oak trunks that were were driven to resistance into the ground. Wow. Yeah. The cottage still stands. It's just a bunch of oak piles, right? Yeah, you're right. You, there's a convention that, that has kind of emerged in the last few decades or whatever that people assume is the only way you can do things and the only way it's ever, ever been done. But there's yeah. loads of buildings in the UK and Ireland that don't have a concrete foundation, you know, suspension well, or whatever. Not only... Not only loads, Jeff, the vast majority of buildings in yeah. the UK and Ireland do That's not have a very good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accuracy matters here for sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like every every building built before 1920 probably has a stone or rubble or brick foundation or 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 some sort of wood pier. Yeah. I mean, look at the Coliseum. Does that use concrete? Look at the House of Parliament. It does. Just in case anyone feels aggrieved at the, the flippant remark, famously, the Romans did use concrete on the Coliseum. Didn't feel like belaboring the point in the conversation. Back to it. All of these buildings, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, you know, I think you guys know Will Arnold at uh, yeah, um, the, the head of climate action at the Institute of Structural Engineers. So, you know, he, he worked he worked with uh, with me down in Rwanda on the, this this project. We'll save this for another episode. But, you know, I, I joke that you know, the most radical thing I've ever done as an architect is get stone footings on the front cover of a structural engineering magazine. Oh, wow. um, you know, this is this is literally how we founded buildings for thousands of years, right? Yeah. There's other ways to found buildings. There's other ways to conceive them, and it's and it's just lifting the veil. I think on on our assumptions is like the first step of yeah. You know, hey, how we're doing things right now is not the future. Okay, well, how did we get here? It's important to ask these questions. Like, why are we where we are? As a as a key way of like thinking. Okay, so how and how are we going to get out of it? That's no, great, and it's it's important to reframe it and to remind people that you're not asking them to do anything wacky 
or or different. Just just forget some of the stupidity of the last few decades, and then um, and, yeah. and, and go back to, to to ways that have stood stood the test of time. You know, yeah, yeah. Just just like we need, we have way more to learn from our grandparents and great grandparents than we have from our parents' generation. That's just a shame they're dead. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> their buildings are still there, so there's yeah. we can we can learn through them. Exactly. That's fantastic. One thing I wanted to run by you as well, actually, one of my little pet hates um, when it comes to life cycle assessment and embodied carbon calculation is, um, and maybe this is for another episode, I don't know, but you can stop me down if, if, if so. I feel like when I look at the way the assess the, the, the calcs are, are required to be done in, in Ireland and in, in the EU or in the UK, if you're following uh, the Royal Institute of Charts of Errors kind of methodology and so on, or their, 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 uh, their standard. It doesn't feel like there's proper attention being paid to the quality of the detailing, for instance, in terms of the uh, the lifespan of the of the building. Like you know, like things like um, you're assuming a window is going to last for fifty years because that's in an EPD, for instance. Um, but mm-hmm. like you know, uh, the weatherproofing detailing at the reveals is absolutely critical, right? Um, and yeah. that uh, you know that kind of stuff. There has to be some way, and I don't know how you do it, but there has to be some way to kind of properly reflect that in embodied carbon calculation. Otherwise, you end up with a, you might have a wonderful figure uh, on a building that ends up not working properly and falling apart after 10 years. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't, I think it by itself is is insufficient. It needs to be seen with that question of durability and performance. And whole life carbon is not going to necessarily capture that either. But the other thing I learned you know, going to practice in Rwanda was going back to first principles of architecture yeah. of, you know, simple things like overhangs on a roof, yeah. uh, drip lines, like, hey, you want your windows and your wall systems to last a long time? Well, you know, don't have water falling on them. You know, use your roof. Don't get away from, you know, my aside from being trained to use a lot of oil in my buildings, I was also trained to have like really nice, tight little massings with you know, where the eaves trough is concealed and it looks really good and it gets into the zine. You know, we need to kind of where contemporary architecture has been, I don't know the right word, just like shapey. Uh, we need to like go back to like, okay, overhangs are good and we need a drip edge. Well, you know, things that design. we thought were maybe ornamentation on my house, like the corbelled top two bricks in my house here before the gutter are actually using, are their very, very specific function. Um, because if the gutter fails and there's a leak, that the drip line is still outside of the rest of the wall, right? Like, they're, again, like looking at old buildings, I think it has so many clues of, hey, that's how you could deal with this issue in an economic perspective that would has redundancy and resiliency, but more like redundancy in, in issues here mm. um, that, uh, yeah, we've been, frankly, I think, kind of forgotten a little bit and need to come back to. Yeah, 100%. Well, minimalism as a design concept always ends up costing more. In the same way, I suppose, as the the ornate frou-frou nonsense that uh, the over-engineering of aesthetics does. I mean, it always comes back to impact, doesn't it? Like, can we? How can we lower the impact, like from beginning to end, on the environment in terms of the tools we use, in terms of the ensuring durability? But those things aren't prized or haven't been prized. I think they will come to be. I like the term, I, I don't know if this is the right time to interject with it, but I like the term um, oil age architecture. Yes. And, um, 
and that kind of brash confidence that happened in the 20th century you know the the newness and the kind of divorcing yourself from from history and and uh and the new possibilities with uh with cheap abundant energy and for you know new materials to produce something radically different um, and that was very seductive and so on but the the lack of kind of attention to considering uh, uh you know they're just just discarding everything that went before it is uh, there's a kind of extraordinary hubris to it you know uh, well it's a oh. facet of imperialism isn't it cultural imperialism as well as the colonial imperialism that is driven by oil i mean the reason why canada values oil as an industry so highly to the point where the perception of it as a proportion of canada's economy is so different like why there's such a dissonance is because oil is strategically important in maintaining power globally that's why the uk government invests so much in subsidizing the oil industry it's why the the saudis have such a vaunted position on the economic uh, on the global stage it's why america has fought two wars in recent living memory i think oil age architecture is a glorious term inglorious term rather <laughs> but uh, it is utterly apposite for the the conversation we're having absolutely uh have you read Bar- barnabas calder's uh, book by the way no no, no. no? Um, i i I've, um i saw i think i saw him posting on linkedin about it when it, uh, when it came out but i'm uh, so scatty at the moment that i don't have time to <laughs> quite reflect and actually learn things i just try yeah. to well, well, all the time i mean yeah. Yeah, we we this is exactly it. I mean, the book is called From Architecture from Prehistory to the Climate Emergency. It's a very entertaining read. Um, if you don't know, I I, I don't know Barnabas part, uh, personally, but um teaches it up at Liverpool. And it's you know, kind of going through the ener- the the embodied energy, the embodied carbon of architecture, like so the period starts with the pyramids and explains the pyramids through like from a kilowatt hour perspective, and then Kind of, you know, even the Roman Colosseum, like people are like, well, the Romans used, you know, cement and concrete. Yeah, they did. They used it extremely judiciously because to to fire the cement, they had to cut down entire forests outside of Rome to get the temperatures to make enough cement to do the dome of the Pantheon, right? So, like, they they realized, shit, we can't deforest the the countryside. We're going to use this resource incredibly sparingly um, because the energy required to fire cement. And now we just use it everywhere, right? Where it still requires the same amount of energy. It's just the energy source has gone from Italian forests to Canadian refinery. So that's, I think, like it's it's a great read, and I would any listener pick it up. It's quick too. It's like really got great anecdotes in there to like kind of contextualize these things because yeah, our architecture is completely of the oil age. That's you know that's what we're doing. That's what we're still doing. I always get a kick out of these you know few few people that post buildings like kind of passive house crew from North America, uh, I will put direct fingers like, can you spot the problem in this like detail, right? Um, and they're showing a building completely wrapped in like, you know, membrane and foam. And I'm like, yeah, your detail is it's wrapped in oil. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's a specific detail in how the window's being flashed. I'm like, you're not seeing the forest through the trees here. Like, <laughs> you know, what, what, what the first problem here is you're building a building made out of oil. And I think recently... Uh, help co-organize this uh, summit in Boston uh, last November around bio-based materials in the context of the Northeast and in New England. And, you know, a lot of the, this like, well, we got to move to these bio-based materials and there's like, well, they're combustible, right? Um, That's the first 
kind of one of the first concerns. Well, they're, aren't they combustible? It's like in comparison to what? Like, oil, how, do yeah. you, how, how do you think XPS like works in a fire, right? And if you haven't seen this video, Croft is a, this uh, manufacturer of compressed straw panels and other things out of Maine. It's an incredible video, best video of the year where they're, they're working with the local fire department doing fire tests on their compressed straw panel wall. And then one made out of like EPS and spray foam and XPS. And it's like, you can just imagine how well those behave in fire, right? They are instantaneous, <laughs> right? Like they, they go up and, and the fire department, the guy, the chief fire guys, like very thick New England accent. He's like, when we know that there's, they call it blue board, right? You know, the kind of basically the Dow rigid foam stuff. They're like, if we know the house has got blue board, we won't go in it. Like, cause we know it's just like a death trap. Right. And, and I was like, ah, oh, that's amazing. And what, what was Grenfell clad in foam. And somehow, and somehow the discussion post Grenfell is like on like wood. It's so bizarre. Like, and again, because we live in an oil age and we subsidize oil industries because the oil industry spent a lot of money lobbying government to subsidize them. Like there's, there's just so much money in it pushing around decision making where if there was a you know if there was an equal amount of money lobbying for bio-based materials we have a very different landscape of of options right now yeah it's one of the reasons why um when you were talking earlier about the insurance industry having it uh, having it right in terms of their the actuaries and stuff understanding the risks you know at least in the context of changing climate you know that that may be so but they, they haven't really covered themselves in glory with their response to 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 grenfell in terms of understanding which kinds of materials you know i gather the response in particular in parts of the i think london has become this isn't just an insurance industry issue but it's become very difficult to build out of timber you know uh yeah very strange yeah yeah. Right. I think we should probably think about wrapping up now. To your point just before, like I think we need to have a go at popularizing this oil age architecture concept because it does seem to sum up an awful lot. And it is so sympathetic to so many of the other concepts and themes we keep hitting up yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Rubbing up against. All right. So with a mind to finishing up, like knowing that we are going to come back, I think we're going to do a whole session with you know, with your consent, Kelly. <laughs> I would love to return to the LCA stuff. I'd love to talk about your experiences in Rwanda because I think even down to the transport issues, I think was fascinating yeah. because it's a landlocked country, so it's not easy to get anything there. And even once you get it there, it's got to fit on the back of a bike, which causes you to rethink everything about, mm. it causes you to rethink about what is possible. It's like hardcore impact driven. I think mm. the idea uh, carbon is just a gateway drug to understanding all of these other novel entities. I think these are all things that you've you've delved in deeply to. And yeah, oh, man. sounds good. We 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 ventured a bit off piece, or I did. Sorry. Yeah. No, uh, that's the whole point. That's, yeah. that's that's how it goes, isn't it? Cop much better than was reported. So long yeah. as you're you're ignoring Ed Sheeran and. Copper um, is a great voyage of self-discovery. Uh, whether it's useful in terms of saving the world, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only—I guess the only thing we just haven't talked about half. However, we can do that now or save it for another time. Well, uh, do you want to give us your pitch for half so people can f look into you, and then we'll we'll make sure we cover it next time in uh, a more fulsome manner. Sure. I don't want this to make it sound like a sales pitch, though. <laughs> 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 uh, I, 
I, I mean, ba- basically the company, you know, I started this, the studio at University of Toronto was called the Towards Half Studio. And the basic idea is under the Paris Agreement, as mentioned, you know, net zero 2050, half by 2030. And it's like, let's run, let's run the first leg of that race first, right? Like if we can figure out how to get to half, it's going to have all the kind of clues how we're going to continue. And it's a much, you know, it's a much closer target and easily conceptualized. So it's like, how can we half the embodied carbon of construction this decade? It's a simple question, right? And and that so that was the name of the studio. And then I think through that led to the grant work and then through that engaging other architects and then started to work with, hey, Diamond Schmidt Architects in Toronto, let's do a life cycle assessment together, showed them results that went viral in their office. Like, oh, wow, I could just use this floor sealant instead of that one and save 800 tons of avoided 800 tons of emissions. Yeah. Okay. Well, we should probably do this on our projects. Like, yeah, you should. So kind of, we've been setting up a consultancy myself and and uh, two other students, uh, two former students, sorry, to help basically train the industry. And uh, our, our offering to firms is pretty simple. Like we'll do one LCA with you. We'll train you how to do it. And then you're on your own. Basically the, the Jesus model of embodied carbon, because we need every practitioner on earth doing this, right? Uh, and we need to do it like we need it now. And so that's uh, that's what we set half up to do is to help train and educate that kind of literacy advocacy part. And then the other side is then working on the policy side. So on the back of the work with the city, it's now working with, working with the federal government to do a design primer for all federal projects, working with the city, looking at the unintended drivers of embodied carbon and zoning and bylaw and urban design guidelines. I've realized like architects don't design buildings, planners do, certainly in the context (laughs) of Canada and in the UK, I think that's true. You know, why do Canadian houses have basements? Because it's a bylaw loophole, basically, right? It's a loophole that exists in Canada that does not exist in Ireland. And that's why one, I have a basement in Winnipeg and you don't have one in County Kildare. I mean, look at the Dormer Bungalow you know, in Ireland. That, 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 the story and a half house uh, exists because of planning, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's so much in our current planning frameworks that needs like to be rethought dramatically yeah. um, with an eye on embodied carbon. And uh, so that's kind of the other part of the work is like trying to focus on the bigger policy questions of Mm. the things that drive emissions. And so they're not butting heads, but they're working in tandem. And there's just, yeah, it's an exciting space to be because there's so much learning happening. It's kind of a wild west. Like, you know, is it perfect? No. Is the accounting like a dead number? No, it's not. Uh, But simply asking the question is the first step, right? Like that is the first step to to dealing with this addiction, you know, back back to using yeah. the gateway drug, like, you know, how are we going to deal with our addictions to to fossil fuels and high high intensity materials? Well, yeah, yeah. come to terms with them, right? And and then wean ourselves off to them and onto much healthier uh, materials over the years ahead. I've always wondered whether, um, I mean, I could agree with you more with you with so so much of what you, what you're saying, um, but I was wondered, and I've never deigned. Uh, never been curious enough to uh, to actually ask the institute this, but whether the the passive house planning package has the word planning in it for that reason. I mean, and, uh, because the point is that you should be designing a building. Um, f- you know, obviously this is just in the context of operational energy in 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 the case of that software and thermal comfort and stuff. Um, but you should be designing a building from first principles uh, with the end goal in mind, rather than you know you got planning permission. Uh, the way the building regulations work in in Ireland and the UK. 
you design your building, it could be the stupidest shape of building imaginable. And then you think about how to make that building, uh, you know, as energy efficient, as reasonably practicable is the term in Ireland, um, within the context of that. You could be a neo-Nazi designing a, a house with a swastika-shaped floor plan with the highest surface area to volume ratio imaginable. And laundry, um, as it would be in Ireland, Jeff. <laughs> there's famously, there is the swastika laundry in Ireland, or there was, which yeah. was yeah. apparently had borne no relation to national socialism. Yeah, yeah. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although uh, some of the things that went on in the, the Magdalene laundries in Ireland. Um, uh, go, go on, Jeff, go on. Yeah, but anyway, but this point, you know, uh, uh, abstracting the process and having one act, a planning act, and then another act, a building control act, um, and never the twain shall meet, it's just so stupid, you know, and it needs yeah. to stop. No, but I think on the on the planning thing, we can maybe this is a future because this is the work we're doing right now, is that planners aren't taught like how the inside of a building works, right? Mm. Yes. And, this is like where architecture and planning bifurcated into two disciplines that hardly understand each other, but are making decisions that are completely reliant, like, you know. Um, yeah, you can completely like, screw up a building before you've set the foot on, before you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're only thinking about its size and its shape and its mass, you know, what that means from an urban design perspective. We're just like, well, wait a minute, you just, like, that means the units in this building are, yeah. like, don't have any daylight. And, and Mac or, or. Or I'd be worried, you know, one of my pet hates in this is, uh, and you see this in planning, uh, even in the Planning Act in Ireland, there'd be, there'd be the Planning Development Act, there'd be, or climate change mitigation, I suppose, has been covered in the context of things like, you know, passive solar, right? So that's great, um, but people too often think that, you know, uh, it's this thing of talking about maximizing passive solar gain, for instance, rather than optimizing it, without realizing that you could create death traps of buildings, you know, um, especially in a warming world, you know? Well, cool. that's an hour and a half. Uh, good luck editing yeah. that down. Um, <laughs> I think there's, there's we've we've taken enough diversions that I'll be able to cut plenty of bits. All right, so Kelly, wrapping up, where can folk find you and what should they be checking out? All links will yeah. be in the show notes. Okay, well, our website's Half Climate Design, so uh, it's a work in progress, but um, you know we're the company's a bit young. You can find us there. We're on Instagram, same. It's all one word, Half Climate Design. So those would be the two places to... Find us, or I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm a self-described kind of embodied carbon evangelical. So I'm happy to, you know, <laughs> present and talk to anybody who wants to come to terms with this. You know, we need collective action at a pace and scale, uh, and I'm here to help people understand this if they're, you know, if they're interested. So please feel free to reach out, and you know, to you both, thanks again for. Uh, the invitation to uh to be on the pod i i love listening to it and dread listening to myself on it <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah. man no you've been belting it's been really good it's been really good fun yeah. and i think there's a an awful lot in there that will be illuminating and we've done an awful lot of foreshadowing there's an awful lot more for us to talk about that i think will be of value for folk to hear so yeah. um yeah check kelly out all right well Presuming that you, the listener, and thank you for joining us, do get something out of this. You probably know someone else who will as well, so please share it with them. And if you can review the podcast, like it. Five stars, please. It's all the algorithm is interested in. Although, I was listening to the Paris Marx podcast, Tech Won't Save Us, and they seem to cast a few aspersions on how podcasts fit into that economy. The Apple is never going to recommend you anyway. 
So I don't bother. If you can't be asked, don't bother. Just share it with people. Join ACAN, join the ECB, join the IGBC. Ladies, check her own space. And what else? Talk to us about the consultancy or... As with Kelly, we are evangelical about these subjects. We just like talking about them. Review, not review, Jesus. <laughs> Subscribe to Passive House Plus. And yeah. if you can, advertise. It is a vehicle well worth supporting. Just check it online if you haven't. I mean, if you haven't, what's going on? And <laughs> uh, Lloyd Alter on Substack, check his Substack. It's really good. It's free. I mean, we all should be subscribing to it, but like, it's a, did you see him posting as of recording? It is a year and a day since he left Tree Hugger. Yeah, I read it every day. I mean, I've come to I've come to know Lloyd personally and found like our cottages are pretty close to each other. So, um, <laughs> really appreciate Lloyd and the referral. So, shout out Lloyd. I'm sure you're listening. Anything else, Jeff? Anything you're plugging? Your Heat Pump Association of Ireland business? No, Anything going on there? No, don't think so. Um, I'm also very busy with the uh, this uh, European project, Smarter Finance for EU, uh, which is trying to create a market for green homes and uh, an associated green uh, development, fi green finance products, green development finance, green mortgages, green loans, and so on. There'll be some events coming up uh, in the not too distant future in that regard, you know. Yeah. All right, well... Thank you very much for joining us, Kelly. And cheers for joining us at home. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.